Hello, my name is David James Young. You might know me as one of the four voices you're about to hear for the next hour or so on Hottest 100s and Thousands. But today, I'm coming to you as a friend. We're friends, right? It doesn't matter if you've been listening for a couple of episodes or a couple of seasons. If you are engaging with Hottest 100s and Thousands, then you have a friend in me. That's why I'm coming to you as a friend to ask, do you dig this? Do you like what we're doing? Because if so, there is one very, very simple way that you can help us out. And that is by telling people about what we're doing over here. We love doing this show and we would absolutely love it if you could share that with anyone you think even might be remotely interested. Tag us on your socials. Mention us in any conversation where podcasts come up. It would be so, so massively appreciated. Thank you again so much for your ongoing support. As I always say, we love you and we appreciate you. And now it's time for another episode of The Great Podcast. Hottest one hundreds and thousands, and we have taken control of your radio station. This is the podcast in which we download the shockwave, get your groove on, and talk about the songs that have been deemed hot enough to be in the Triple J Hottest One Hundred. My name is David James Young. I am one of the four voices you're going to be hearing for the next hour or so. Joining me once again, it's Nathan Harrison. Hi. It's Andrew McDonald. Hey hey. And it's Adam Buncher. My shockwave didn't install properly. Oh, let's wait oh, to, talk to talk about that because I'd like to talk about that. Oh, really? The the internet software part, uh, Andrew has something to say. <laughs> Resident <laughs> hacker Andrew McDonald has a hot take on Shockwave. Yeah. He's in. Deej, I'm, and I can't emphasize this enough, in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you did it without furiously typing away at your keyboard. It's all right. I am vaping, so... Oh. <laughs> That's how he did it. Just he somehow hacked his vape. That if he vapes, it hacks. I just blew vape smoke onto my screen, and when it cleared, it said "You're in." You're in. <laughs> Fuck, man, that's some good shit. Speaking of good shit, we are in the fourth and final quarter of the Triple J Hottest 100 of the year 2000. So let's not waste a second more. At number 25, oh shut! It's Shehead with. Kiss a fire.
making their debut in the Hottest 100, coming in at number 25 in the Hottest 100 of the year 2000. That is the song Pacifier, not to be confused with the band Pacifier, who are also the band she had. Or their album Pacifier, (laughs) which this song is not on. Yeah. There's only one man that can can clear up all this confusion for us, and his name is Nathan Harrison. Uh, Nathan, what do you got for us? Oh, I thought it was going to be Dan Brown. I would read the Dan (laughs) Brown book about Shihad. I think that would be a good book. The Da Vinci Code? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I always thought that these guys were Australian, and I don't know where I got confused about that as a kid, but... Because we've claimed just about every other well, band. Well, I guess mm. I guess that's probably it. What was it? Russell Crowe and Neil Finn and... The Beatles. I think he... <laughs> yeah, the Beatles. Mm, that was a big one. Vic Runga. <laughs> OMC. <laughs> Dave Dobbin. I'm just naming people from New Zealand now. Jacinda Arden. To be fair, she was a founding member of Crowded House. And not many people know that. Who are Australian because they were founded in Melbourne. Thank you very much, everybody. The Finhead yes, has indeed. logged on. <laughs> So these guys, there's a whole lot to talk about the name of the band and maybe we'll put that to the side until we talk about the song first. I quite like this. I've always had time for this band. I've never got super into them because they're not really like my wheelhouse in terms of of the kind of stuff I listen to. But they've always even, you know, I think I saw them at Big Day Out 2006 or something. And they've always just been a sturdy band that is like reliable heavy rock band and I think this is a really good song I think it's big I like the vocals and everything I think they managed to do a lot while avoiding the kind of pitfalls and tropes of a lot of other sort of heavy rock and post grunge music around at the same time it's emotional without being over the top hard on your sleeve kind of post grungy stuff it's just emotional without being yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it manages to just not be hair at all it's like got good kind of riffs but it never really descends into like chug a chug yeah yeah it's never really chug a chug i kind of feel like at, at this point at least this is new zealand's grinspoon hmm. it feels like it's coming from a similar sort of place i can say that they're like a polite grinspoon yeah like a polite grinspoon did we already say someone was a polite something the other week jebs it was jebs yeah, yeah. jebediah is the polite man's friends are wrong yeah sorry sorry can I, can I just put a pin that there i remembered a thing hey, hey! oh my god it was a matter of days ago we recorded that but time is fluid here so i'm stoked on it this is just like that movie um lucy like Andrew is using more than 10% of his brain and eventually it will kill him. <laughs> I think that's how that movie works. I suppose that is technically right, Nathan. One day I will use more than 10% of my brain and one day I will eventually die. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh God. But um, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm fucking with you, man. I've never really given much time to She Had. I vaguely recognized this song listening to it, but like it sounds like what you think early 2000s, late 90s alternative rock sounds like, but done just very, very well. It's a nice mid-tempo rocker. The band are in great form. The vocals are tight. I can absolutely see why it's here. It's absolutely like Stone Cold Perfect song to break the top quarter mark. When people think about Triple J in the 90s and early 2000s, I imagine this is kind of the Sonics they're remembering, right? It has that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a while for this to grow on me. The first time I heard it, I thought it was just a bit too lumbering and mid-paced. It is a bit lumbering. Yeah. But straight away, I was already kind of going like, oh, okay, but some of those vocal melodies are nice. And over just even just a few more listens, 
I was kind of way on board. But I kind of like, I feel like it still might be a little bit too sincere just for the amount of substance it has. Like, I feel like I'd end up at that big day out that you were at, Nathan, arm in arm with the crowd going like, yeah, man, I'm feeling so... Um, I'm sorry, what are we singing about? Uh, <laughs> the melodies are so soaring, though, and the vocal performance is pretty much untouchable. And I also really like how they managed to create a lush kind of soundscape with those different guitar lines. In place of having many, many different riffs, they've just got that one main riff and they're just banking on sitting in the groove of the repetition of it and then layering over the top of it. I think that's a really nice way to create an anthemic rock song. Totally. When I think of She Had, I think of big swinging, like hard rock songs. And for them to do something a bit more mid-tempo and kind of drawn back and kind of with a bit more of an emotional core to it was kind of surprising for me. I knew this song existed, obviously, because that's what they named the band after when they had to change their name. Again, we will we will get into that when the time's right. I don't think I remembered it being this slow or like comparatively slow anyway. This isn't what I ever went to She Had for. But to their credit, they were able to kind of and make it work in their favour. Like, it's still not my favourite song of theirs by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I think there's a lot on offer here. John's vocals are really strong. I'm always here for, like, those kind of down-tuned guitars that they use. Like, that's always been a big part of She Had Sound, like, something thick and very crunchy. And, yeah, it suits it suits John's vocals a lot in particular. I think there's still plenty of merit to it. Yeah, that's the thing. People who are more familiar with the band, uh, please enlighten me. Were She Had more known for, I guess, being almost a bit more like kind of punk rocky, like maybe like your Grinners, like was mentioned, or maybe even like your Jebs maybe. Was there a bit more speed and punk rock attitude to the other stuff? It, it was definitely faster and at points much, much heavier than this. Yeah, this song's kind of out of character for them. Like it, it, they weren't like completely alien to it, but uh, it definitely wasn't like their go-to, especially like in the early days. Like they were much, much heavier in the early days. Yeah, right. Okay. And again, I'm really not an expert on the band apart from like the naming. All right. Stuff, well, we've which... we've alluded to this quite a lot. Are we going to just go ahead and talk about it? Yeah. So yeah, the band when they first started, they've always been known as She Had, and in like 2001, 2002, in this post 9/11 world, which I got to say without irony for the first time in the history of <laughs> they determined that the name sounded too close to the term Jihad. That's kind of valid because you know where they got the name from? They were watching David Lynch's Dune. Huh. Yeah, right. And there's apparently um, a lot of Arabic words used throughout that movie, including the actual word Jihad, and they just cocked it up huh. and they thought it was Shihad and they named their band after it thinking it was just a June thing. Yeah, right. They actually should have been called Jihad in the first place, which is a bit... <laughs> While we're at it, if, we, if we're going to go ahead and name a band Jihad, it's a crying shame that there's not a funk band called Fatwa. <laughs> that just seems like a gimme to me. It just sounds like a funk band. Sorry. It incredibly fucking does. Yeah, and so they, they stayed uh, as the band Pacifier for quite a while, like I mean, a few years, and then I guess we'd moved on from... 9-11 in this post post 9-11 world they were like we can go back to she had now it's okay 
Yeah. And uh, subsequently, the band name Pacifier was then raffled on Triple J by Jay and the Doctor. <laughs> and a little known band from Tasmania called Theory of Everything won the name Pacifier. Well done, boys. So good. Are they still called Pacifier now? That's where I tap out a knowledge of that particular band. But uh, feel free to write in Theory of Everything slash... Uh, pacifier slash the band formerly known as Pacifier, whatever you happen to be known as now, um, hit us up. <laughs> right. I don't think they got too big because if you search Theory of Everything Pacifier, all the results are like about the term, the Theory of Everything, and then uh, the Stephen Hawking biopic, the Theory of Everything. Mm. So, And this is not the science episode, so we're not going to mm. get into that. <laughs> it's been done. We've covered it. We covered science too completely two episodes past. We've already had science. It's finished, yeah. Until Until some new science comes out. We're good. We're talking about fatwas and jihad. This is the no, no. <laughs> this is the religious episode. No, it's not. Let's walk very carefully, boys. <laughs> Shut it down. Shut it down. I get why bands change their names because of controversy kind of thing. Like a, a recent example that I think was totally fair was uh, Viet Cong changing their band name to Preoccupations. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Andrew Jackson Jihad, for a similar reason... Yeah, is now known as just AJJ. I was literally about to bring them up. They should have changed their name to Andrew Jackson Sheehad. Andrew Jackson Pacifier. <laughs> Andrew Jackson Andrew Pacifier. Pacifier. AJP. We all just said the exact three words in a fucking round robin there. Like- We're very good. <laughs> Surprising thing for me to learn about this band, they were formed in 1988. Yeah, they'd been around for a while. They'd been here. I mean, I think they were a um, high school band, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, they were still in high school when they formed. Yeah, and it kind of checks in as well like you feel kind of bad for them for all the name stuff because they just like named their band after a thing from a weird movie they watched in high school and then kind of the world changed forever and (laughs) they felt a lot of pressure to do stuff what a weird thing to happen lest we forget the uh very famous uh american post-metal band isis they never changed their name though but they did break up yeah they broke up before it all happened but they literally had to go back and change their facebook page to isis the band hooking back onto the song i was looking at the youtube comments for these songs as i love to do quite a few commenters saying these guys are the kiwi foo fighters yeah i can ah. see with this song with this song right i can 100 percent see but also in terms of their popularity right because she had have five number one studio albums under their belt that is equal Equal first for number one records of any New Zealand artist alongside Hayley Westenra, which I'm sure I don't need to- Of course. You know, hardly (laughs) needs to be said. Hardly needs to be said. You're all totally across. Of course, it's Hayley. Yeah, naturally. Deej said that (laughs) non-ironically. I I was doing a bit about how we all know (laughs) Hayley. And of course, Deej is like, yeah, I've got three t-shirts of Hayley Westenra. She's really lovely. I've seen her four times. (laughs) I am close personal friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we hang out every time she comes to Sydney. Get her on bar bands. (laughs) Fuck, I'm actually going to do that now. I'm going to find her. Yeah, tight. She seems really cool. I, um... I had a look at her Wikipedia page. She sings in like five languages. She's been in like, she was in like 40 stage plays by the age of 11, like total normal amount of achieving from Haley. Ah, um, uh, yeah. But we, we wish her the best. Haley Westenra, check her out. But you know what? All this talk about names as well. And one of the most remarkable names linked to she had slash pacifier has not been mentioned yet. And that is the last name of John, the singer. Too good. It's legitimately too good. Yes. That's his last name. Oh, that's baller. That's baller. He is John Too Good. He was born with the name Too Good. 
Yeah. That's uh, that's a bit of all right, isn't it? I have an auntie <laughs> in Queensland on my dad's side that married into a, a, a too-good family. You'd take the name. Yeah, wouldn't you? <laughs> Dude, you'd take the name. And also, like, y- you'd have to use it when, like, meeting people or flirting, right? You'd have to say, like, too good by name, too good by reputation. You'd have to pull the powers move. <laughs> That's what's up. It sucks that you'd have to, but you, you would have to. Like, you just, your hands are tied. Also... This is our first time talking about a New Zealand artist in a hot minute. So can we just have a quick uh, a quick check of our favourite residents over the pond? Uh, Nathan, do you know how the Kakapo population is actually doing right now? Especially our boy, our dear son whom we love, Bluster Murphy the Kakapo. Kakapo are actually doing quite well this year. Like, still? Yeah. They're, they're still fucking? Yeah, more than in a while. Awesome. Okay, so that's that's still going strong. He hasn't sent us a letter or anything, no other correspondence. No. Do you want to get a letter from your son about how good his sex life is? Come on, man. If my son's a endangered parrot? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Slash trap artist. Uh, I mean, how's, how's his music career going? Is he still making trap? I've gotten into tantric sex, like Sting. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way to do it when your population is low. No, it's not. <laughs> not the most efficient method of breeding. No, you, you, got, you, you got to root around, man. To fucking read the fucking the ethical slut, the seminal text about sleeping around. Yeah. Okay. Get on it, bluster. <laughs> Actually, maybe he's too young for it. Maybe he should read like The Hungry Caterpillar. It's a great book. Also a good book. What about what about the thirsty caterpillar? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the thirsty caterpillar. Bluster Murphy's seminal opus, The Thirst Trap Caterpillar. Seminal, nice. Coming to a studio near you. Good grief. <laughs> At number 24, this is the Bum Funk MCs with Freestyle. Rock the microphone. Straight from the top of my dome. Freestyle. Rock the microphone. Carry on with the freestyle. MCs coming in at number 24 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That is the almighty world conquering smash hit known as Freestyler. Our musical journey takes us from New Zealand over to Finland. Go on, do a Finnish accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go on. I'm from Finland. Isn't that weird? Um, I, I literally don't know what Finnish people sound like. It, does it sound like this? Like Finnish hip hop is a thing. That's something I discovered at a very young, precarious age. So like, imagine me as a literal child experiencing this for the first time. An audiovisual feast for the senses. It's my first time hearing this style of music. It's my first time seeing this style of clothing. This is dated terribly. Everything from the tracksuits, the like orange tinted sunglasses, the dreads on the white kid, but it's still your 
leading into a completely different world to your own. For that alone, I have to give this song so, so much credit. I completely understand how naff it is and how uncool it is, but at the time... You've got to understand, this was the coolest shit in the world. These guys were fucking royalty for, like, that one moment in the sun. They completely took over the world from a country that would not have another hit single for another, let's say, four years when the Rasmus have a huge hit with In the Shadows. That might be the last big hit to come out of Finland, for all I know. So... Purely in in realm of its context and its melding of genres and the way that that super creative, very like visually stimulating music video. I loved this. I loved this so, so much. So it's difficult to come back to this and like objectively try and view this song now. In my heart of hearts, I know, oh yeah, this is lame. This isn't cool. Probably at the time it was shat on as well, for all I know. I remember when I was a kid and, like, I was reading a magazine. It was some article, like, shitting on Eiffel 65. And I was genuinely shocked as, as, like, an eight, nine-year-old kid. I'm just like, what, people are mean to Eiffel 65? But they're, like, so popular. (laughs) Why would someone have something bad to say about such a popular musician? Oh, my sweet summer child. That's a life lesson you will learn some 15-odd years later when you're reviewing the last Arctic Monkeys record. Oh, boy. (laughs) David, the thing is with this song, it is one of the most time capsule pieces of art of the era that it comes Absolutely. from. Absolutely. 100%. It goes beyond whether or not it's good or it's bad or you enjoy it or you don't. It's a fucking exemplification of like the last grasp of the 20th century and the first step of the 21st. The synths, the beats, the chop vocals, the fucking rapid finish rapping, the, the fucking way that this as a hip-hop song still has elements of rock music in there to hold your hand and carry you through the hip-hop that you aren't familiar with, but vice versa, if you're more versed in hip-hop language, there's still enough of that present to carry you through the more, like, I guess, traditional, unquote, kind of music. is so exactly of 2000. There's no idea this possibly could have come out. And, like, I'm with you, David. It's very, very, very difficult, and it's above my pay grade to say whether or not the song is good, but... It is well and truly in my wheelhouse to say that when it comes on, I'm having fun. Hey, well, I, I'm happy to pick up from here. I think it is good. Yes, thank you. It is. It is good. <laughs> Was everyone just waiting for one person to be the first person to say that it's actually <laughs> fucking good? Well, I think it's good too. But I think as well, if someone said that they don't like it, you have to accept that. Like that's, that's fine. But I think it's good. Of course, yeah. of course. Here's the thing. The actual electronic sounds and elements that have been used inside this song. They're well done, right? Fucking incredible. Yeah, they're good. It's really, really well produced. So shouts out to uh, JS16, who's one half of Bonfuck MCs, the other one being the rapper being B-O-Dub. He was previously known as B-O-W, just uh, by the by. Oh, of course, B-O-W. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, Now now I'm there. Regular bow. (laughs) (laughs) The the precursor to little bow wow and then bow wow. Yeah, the the, the Virgin Lil versus the Chad. No (laughs) intro. (laughs) (laughs) See, the thing is that JS16 was actually a house DJ. And so I think he's actually dragging up all these incredibly legit, deep electronic sounds, but he's just creating the most polished and catchy versions of them 
to use as the backing for this song. But seriously, every element that he uses is a hook unto itself. And that exactly explains why the song blew up and was catchy all across the world, I think. Everything is a hook. It begins with a hook with the with the freestyler coming in. That little high electronic synth line coming in, that's a hook. It's just hook upon hook to creating a perfect storm of catchiness kind of becoming its own internalized meme as well, just because it sounds so different to everything else, due to the fact that, like, it's a pop song that's gone through Google Translate two times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's come off the, the the other end of it, and you kind of go like, huh, that's a weird way to express it, but it all kind of still works. I, I actually will argue that now it has aged really, really well because the kind of vibe that's been picked up by pop music again has been entirely informed by hits like this you know i'm talking very much about things that are driven by uh pc music or pop for pop's sake charlie xcx and and all those kind of people like they're really picking up on the same kind of vibe again and just where the nostalgia wave has kind of got us to lens freestyler to kind of sit on a nice little podium at the moment and that might shift like at time of recording very much its own little time capsule in itself but I would argue that right now, it's a fucking bop. Yeah. I think there's something really cool about that because only last year they recorded a 20th anniversary new music video for it. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a cool video as well. With the same kid? Different person. The original kid was a model who also became a musician or an actor or something. You know how models do. No, no, no. You know what he is? What is he? He's a chef. Oh, he's a chef now. What? There's no way you'd recognize him. He's this like skinny, moustached Finnish chef guy. He has an Instagram where he just posts all of his foods. He's very good. Nice. Yeah. nice. Well, he was a model or an, and an actor, I think. Yeah, yeah. But for the new one, they used a, a YouTuber, Milika uh, Bacetic. Oh, no, maybe she's not a YouTuber, but there's heaps of other YouTubers in there or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, they made like an updated video, which is... Cool. That's so sick. I'm go- I'm- I'll have to check that out. Definitely. It just speaks to how iconic the video really was. I also know that other uh, Finnish hip-hop bands have parodied the video, which I think is very good. Also, the video is obviously a prequel to Click, the Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody messing with my Click. Yeah. Just, but it's iconic and so of the time, Andrew. You're 100% correct. Like That's, mm. that's what really hit me about it. It's just like, man, this is that moment in time incredibly. Yeah, and um, I'd be remiss... Nathan, if I didn't bring it up, you know what I'm going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Our um, high school, just out of high school punk band uh, covered this song live a few times. Oh, sick. I can see how that would work as a punk song. It was great. Like, it's just a fun song. Like Even if you, like the majority of people hearing it when they were first hearing it kind of thing, couldn't rap along with it, you certainly love to rap along with the, or sing along with the fucking chorus and the bits of the verses that you did pick up on. It, it's just a, a song that encourages interaction between the listener and the performer like the fucking the chopped screwed up vocals here and there kind of thing like it's 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 utterly of its time like i've stressed but i do think it's just fun as fuck the other thing that i think is at play here as well is that this is fitting inside a context where we're about to see and we're already starting to see a few novelty songs songs that are banking on the idea that they're just going to be catchy enough that they're going to reach the top of the charts for a blip and they're going to make a whole stack of money without having any kind of artistic merit. And like that happens both before and after this song. And I think due to the sheer catchiness and the kind of weirdness of this song, it is pretty easy to throw it in with that lot 
and kind of dismiss it as being disposable. But I don't think it was composed with the idea of being disposable. And I don't think it actually is a as disposable as people may think that it actually is. I think it's just different to the context of other music that we were listening to at the time and is just hella catchy. And I think it's exactly what you said. You know, it was composed with the idea of just being a party song. The guys have said that in in interviews and whatever. It was also in its own little way trying to throw back to old school hip hop where it was just all about block parties and whatever. Because that's kind of what hip hop was in the Finnish scene. And they said like, you know, we want to we kind of release this song worldwide to, to kind of get that kind of hip hop circulating again. So in its own way, what I'm saying is that it does carry an integrity and it does carry an authenticity. And I, just to quantify again how big it actually was, this was number one for the first half of 2000 in 11 countries. It was absolutely huge. That's fucking insane. It was double platinum here too, which is nuts. But it makes fucking sense though, right? The, the appeal of this is so fucking broad to the point where like, it was this high on Triple J RS100, again, number one in mainstream pop charts. And even now, fucking 20 years removed, it just welcomes you in with like its mix of house music, accessible rap kind of thing, chopped and screwed, fun. And not as you said, Adam, not quite novelty, but like novelty adjacent that it's just so much fun. And this is the thing, right? Like I, I just had a moment there where I was going like, wait, did you just say all that shit about bomb funk MC's freestyler? I was expecting you guys to fucking tear this a new one. Nah, man, would never. It just didn't occur to me to do that. Like when I came to it, I treated it in the same way as I treat any other song that we're talking about on this podcast. And I had fun. And like, of course I don't bemoan anyone for just not having that kind of relationship to this song where they can even handedly come to it and not consider what a cringy teenager they were at the time that this was out. Because, hey, that might be a part of it as well. Perhaps you can't separate this song from memories of fucking awkward school dances. Sure. Or desperately wanting dreadlocks and, like, holding, like, a pen and pretending to click it or whatever, right? Alternatively, though, like, if we get, like, listener response people being like, dude, you guys fucking dug that song? What the fuck? I thought you guys had good taste. Or alternatively, if we get people saying, like, I can't believe you were fucking hesitant to rave about how good that song was. It's all fucking valid, man. It is. That's exactly the point. Yeah. It's a litmus (laughs) test for late 2000. And I would say, throw it on, reevaluate your position. Either side, yeah. Find out what side of the fence that you sit on now because that's an interesting thing to do. Number 23, it's the return of UMI. This is Damage. I woke up with the war in my head An old man's crumble And an extra space in the bed And old John Pine Sing the next line Something that can make me smile I'm gonna have to be a content Making their return to the Triple J Hottest 100, coming in in the 2000 countdown at number 23. That's a song called Damage. It comes from their album Dress Me Slowly. Now, Andrew. David. There we go. Yeah. 
<laughs> now, we've talked a lot about many classic UMI tracks here. These guys are no strangers to the countdown, but we are entering a new era of the band at this point. Indeed we are. Yeah, this marks their first album as a four-piece uh, with uh, Davey Lane joining on guitar, who I believe was a lad of, oh my God, like 18 or something when he joined this band. And he's still with them now, yeah? That's right. Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, as you said, this is from their fifth record. And also it was a unique recording process for the band because this was the first record that they um, secured US direct distribution deals. Yeah. So part of that meant recording demos of songs beforehand to like – show to the label like oh please sir is this good enough for a for a song may i have some more kind of thing <laughs> which uh tim has noted on as being a very different process to them before just being like an australian rock band they were just like all right we know the song let's go in there i'm tracking the guitar first then we do the whatever blah 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 and actually tim was saying about the recording of the dress me solely record and this track damage saying um, i hated the american guys and the english guys who were asking us to modernize our sound we're just so unsuited to that i've got the voice of a 12 year old girl and the mind of a seven-year-old Daryl on the record, but I do love the record. <laughs> God defend that man. That's fucking great. <laughs> Can we all please pray for the ongoing beauty and power that is Tim Rogers? What an absolute king. He's a king. And I think part of that you can tell with this track, like it does sound notably different from previous UMI editors we've spoken about, not just Tim's register, which does seem a bit higher here. And, and like, there's a bit more flourish happening in the song. There's like some like the string section. It's a little Bond themey. Hey? I was gonna say James Bond. I was like, did they write this for a James Bond theme and it got rejected or something? Like, so much. Yeah. What was the 2000 James Bond movie? Working title was Damage. <laughs> but there's something about all those like cascading strings and the real like kind of ballady nature and, and his voice. Like, he really does sort of vocally get really big towards the end and it, it, it fills this space that's like, wow, this is this is different for UMI. Those flourishes do make it sound different and I think that might be part of the um the just perhaps the band's evolution or perhaps uh pressures from the label to, as Tim says, modernize their sound. But um I think in spite of those and occasionally because of those, this is a fucking lovely song. I really think that the lyrics are quite gorgeous. The band groove along in a really great way that feels like a, a vehicle for Tim to like recite this kind of pointed but in its way abstract poetry. The flourishes, I think, actually work. The strings are good. The keyboard groove at the end is fucking good. I think this is just a fucking good song. It's not at all what I was expecting. I haven't heard the Dress Me record in full. So I wasn't really knowing what to expect from a UMI song that I didn't know. And it wasn't quite this, but I was happily surprised at seeing a new side to UMI. And whilst I do, like I will always prefer the rougher, drunken swagger rock star of Tim doing that kind of mode, hearing him in this mode is fucking engaging as well. And the band are great. There's a reason that like... Davy Lane has stayed on so well because, like, as well, there, there isn't like a bit in this where you're like, holy shit, that guitar is so good. But, like, he adds a fucking element to the band that's very good here. And I think this just works. I think this is a newer, perhaps slightly more mature and refined, but still with a little bit of a smirk side to UMI that is just fucking terrific. They, that they continue to be good. Yeah, I think. In the same way as you can always hear all of Tim's favourite bands in a UMI song, you can still hear all of Tim's favourite bands in the fabric of this <laughs> Yeah, <UMI> absolutely. <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to draw a lineage to, like, Purple Sneakers. This is kind of like Purple Sneakers Part 2 Sneak Harder. <laughs> 
there's two main things that kind of get me. One is the tone, which is this like tired, self-deprecating weight that Tim somehow manages to turn into a swagger. That's something that we've heard from him before in his songs as well, uh, particularly like Heavy Heart. Damn it, man, how do you make a lyric about spilling wine on yourself make you seem like the coolest person that ever existed? Yeah. Speaking of lyrics, that's the other thing about it, is that like if you ever wanted to demonstrate to someone what the idea of showing, not telling in songwriting is, you'd show them this song, right? The, the kind of lyric that really stands out is I wrote down what I think on the head of a matchstick, wrote it all short and sweet, all that made sense to me. But dude, I had the exact same lyric written in my notes. Because it's unspeakably wonderful. And essentially a less inspired and talented songwriter who was just telling would say, nothing makes sense to me. Because that's all that's expressing, right? And yet here you have this far more evocative, far more poetic shown idea of that. And it's just like, cool, songwriting, guys, there it is. With UMI, with I guess many, many bands, particularly bands where where lyrics are an important part of them, it is easy to treat it as, in this case, the Tim Rogers show. But I do think it's important not to discount the fact the whole band are in really good form here. It's not as loose and raucous as the UMI that I love, but it's still terrific in how they work to channel this backing for what is Tim Rogers' unknowingness in his poetry here. I think it's just a very well done. Well, like I was saying, similar to She Had, I was not expecting a song of theirs like this to get in and certainly was not expecting it to get as high as it has. Uh, like when you look at some of like the the names, like purely purely on name, like there are much much bigger bands with, in retrospect, much much bigger songs that came lower than this, which isn't even a like by any stretch of the imagination like a signature UMI song, and yet it has done remarkably well for itself. I think that says a lot about the connection that UMI still had with the Triple J demographic. They do not have a single here in this bracket. Like, they are the odd ones out, and yet they are still kind of standing the test of time. I think songs like this kind of show you why that is. It's not necessarily like your raucous, like, 10pm on a, on a Friday night pub rock version of UMI but you know they've always kind of had multitudes to them and they've always made that work to the best of their abilities this is a band that can make you think and reflect as much as it can make you jump around in a mosh pit and fucking like rock out and shit you know so yeah to kind of forge into this new world for them and like still have that connection to Triple J is a really really special thing Now, as we mentioned, this is the first album to feature Davey Lane on lead guitar up till this point, pretty much for the entirety of UMI's run. Primarily, UMI has been a trio, so Tim Rogers, Andy Kent on bass, and Russell Hopkinson on the drums. So this is the first time they're bringing in someone new. Davey is a UMI superfan. This is very early ages of the internet, obviously, And I'm bringing this up because that's how Davey made his connection to UMI in the first place. He was so obsessed with UMI that he figured out all of their guitar parts and was transcribing them to guitar tablature and putting that up online. 
Tim obviously had an eye for that and they became in contact. And eventually Tim asked Davey to join the band. Davey gets the call and thinks someone's playing a prank on him. So he hangs up on Tim Rogers. Classic though. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. And he has now been in UMI for almost 20 years. But again, I do think that like while there are new flourishes here, it is still very much in the UMI wheelhouse. It, like, there's, there's no denying it. There's, this is a UMI song while the new elements are there kind of thing. And I think that just stands to how well done the song is and how great a songwriter Tim and the whole band are. Nathan, you love UMI. Like, we've talked about them plenty of times. We've seen them together a few times as well. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is good. You know, I think, like, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a more flourished, souped-up kind of heavy heart sort of track. Yeah. I don't really go past number four record much when I'm listening to UMI. Not that there's not good stuff there. But yeah, this is nice. And and like you're saying, I think it really speaks to, I guess, the longevity of them as a band and the the kind of consistency in the relationship with the audience that they have at this point that, like you said, that they, they're so high up. Because this album did okay. This was the first one in a few not to reach number one. This got number three, which is still good, obviously. That's not, like, bad. But no, yeah, it's it's great. It's It's just... It's a beautiful song and it's nice seeing this side of their craft on display so well and received so well. I think as well, like, it's worth highlighting that this is a breakup song and it really does manage to capture that kind of I don't know what to do with myself breakup feeling. Mm. I feel like this is uh, a breakup that maybe you should uh, start you should be starting to kind yeah. of move past by the point that this song is kind of written. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, I think it's it's <laughs> yeah. been around long enough for time to kind of settle. And I just want to highlight that as a mood and as a time period for this kind of breakup song, especially moving forward and uh, considering some other songs that we're going to be talking about. Maybe now. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe next. Uh, the next one or the one after? I'm not sure which one. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned, <laughs> folks. At number 22, this is Moby with Horsey. Making his return to the hottest 100 of the year 2000. That's the song Porcelain from the album Play. Oh, man. He's just walking back in like, what did I miss? Did I leave a a cigarette lid or something? What happened here? Talk about damage. (laughs) So, obviously, referring to the Natalie Portman stuff, which was... Very bad and an amazing way to bomb a book release. Hey, it might be possible that people are listening to this episode 
when the news cycle and recent memory has entirely moved past that. So do you want to just kind of like bring us up to speed a little bit? So Moby put out a book that uh, uh, prophetically was was called Then It All Fell Apart. In the book, uh, he sort of chronicled his career and everything, which is fine. But he kind of talked about having a relationship with Natalie Portman a good 20, even more years ago, I guess. Um, Probably around the time of play, I guess. Natalie Portman then sort of responded and said, we never had a relationship, Moby. And Moby, because there's kind of two paths to go at this point. You kind of be like, oh, oh, shit, sorry, my bad, no worries. But he kind of doubled down a bit and tried to assert that they did have a relationship. Like posting old photos and shit, yeah. One vague photo of them at a party together, awkwardly hugging kind of thing. Like It was not good at all. And there's a significant age difference between them. She was 18 and he was 34. Oh, boy. Yeah. Basically, it was like the internet reacted really badly to the fact that he was this person way in the future demanding that, no, 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 I am right. I definitely, as a 34-year-old, did date you as a 19-year-old, despite the fact that you said <laughs> we didn't. And that's just yeah. the optics, as you would say, of that. Are, um, he, he doubled down in a very bad way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, can we also quickly, just as a postscript, uh, talk about his incredible damage control? Yeah, uh, for distracting people from the fact that <laughs> he had this huge social faux pas. He got a giant neck tattoo that said "Vegan for Life." But that isn't even where it ended. <laughs> he got two giant sleeve tattoos that read from right to left, "Animal Rights." Hey, I love animal rights. I'm I'm behind people being vegans, but you don't need to advertise. Yeah, it's okay, man. You don't need <laughs> yeah. to post. You don't need to post. You don't need to post with big black block letters on your own GD skin, my dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if they're his first, but they're certainly his first like majorly visible tattoos. To get a neck tattoo and and full sleeves that go down to the hands is so fucking funny, man. I think to his credit, he's kept his head down since then. Yeah. Which is good. And look, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, the shit he did was dumb. It was cringe was the worst of it. He posted cringe on Maine. But if you look at the last five years with, I guess, men in general having having their dirty laundry aired, his is, it's not clean, but it's not fucking shit in the dax dirty. (laughs) Like, he's still a stooge, but he's not fucking any number of fucking people you're inevitably thinking of right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking of a lot of people right now. (laughs) Yeah. It just means that you're handed this Moby track. It's like, here, here, successful, wildly acclaimed, brilliant podcast filled with geniuses. Um, Talk about this Moby song and you're like, "Uh, do I have to? We're like, (laughs) it it feels heavier than it should be. Is there extra weight that's coming with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, man, do we have to have a long preamble describing the history of why this artist is somewhat problematic before I talk about this song? Yes, we do. Yeah. Anyway, so this is Moby with the song Portman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Written about the breakup of a past relationship, but um, who knows to who and whether or not they were actually going out in the first place. (laughs) Who's to say? (laughs) Who's to say? Who's to say? (laughs) It has to have been about a relationship, so I don't think it was Natalie. Yeah. It was about uh, Queen Amidala and Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Completely fictional. Uh, The quote from Moby about the writing of this song. 
I was involved with this really, really wonderful woman, and I loved her very much. Uh-oh. Oh, but no. I kn- okay, it sounds like Natalie so far. Fuck. <laughs> but I knew deep in my heart of hearts that we had no business being romantically involved. Oh. So it's sort of about being in love with someone, but knowing that you shouldn't be with them. Oh, oh it can't, my God. Is it, it can't fucking be <laughs> about it, can it? That's going to be fucked. insane. Andrew, Andrew, I want to be perfectly clear here. I am not <laughs> saying that... This song <laughs> is written about Natalie Portman. I this podcast surely he been putting away someone else. Surely the shit. This podcast is by no means insinuating <laughs> that this song <laughs> was written about Natalie Portman. Yeah, I, I got a quote here saying I was involved with a really, really wonderful woman. I loved her very much, but I knew that she was going to star in Attack of the Clones, which is one of the weaker <laughs> Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> Moby had a bit of a troubled uh, relationship to this song as well. Um, He initially didn't like it. He criticised the production. He thought it was mushy. This is actually Moby singing on the track, which I think is the first time that that's kind of happened. And he criticised his own vocals, saying that they're really, really weak. And he basically just said, no, porcelain is average. When I play it and people are there, that's when people go off and get drinks. No one's into this song. It wasn't going to be on the album. But the album had only released five singles prior to this. And so- (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what what are you going to do? But the manager, he, he came to him and he said, like, listen, man, like, I think this song is good. I think you should release it. And here it is with the highest position that Moby has occupied. In, I believe this is the highest position that Moby occupies in a, in a Hottest 100, right? Number 22? Comfortably. Comfortably. Yeah. Um, also, it's so different to the rest of play, right? It is very different to the rest of play. It's a, it's a different gear in a lot of ways. We also have to flag, though, that part of its success and popularity is because of some real soundtrack hours. Um, this was featured in the film The Beach, directed by Danny Boyle. Mm, oh, starring um, Leo DiCaprio as The Beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And as Natalie Portman's former lover once said, I hate sand. It's gritty and gets everywhere. <laughs> We've talked before about how uh, nearly everything off play was was licensed, was licensed yeah. to a That's huge right. amount. Um, TV, movies, ads, everything you can think of. Yeah. And so, you know, Moby credits its inclusion in the beach as being part of the success for play. Well, maybe you could credit the inclusion of every song in everything for being part of the success for play. We've talked about that before. Really, really fascinating how the how the record had a second life um, through all that that licensing and whatever. Also, just want to say, like, just based on that, like Moby disliking this track, saying that it's too mushy or whatever, um, I think that's really fucking interesting. And and just especially a note for anyone who makes anything, hey, sometimes you're not the best critic of your own goddamn work, right? If you think it's too something, other people may not find it that. If someone else listens to your track and says it might be too something, consider that. But maybe you know, ask for that opinion. I, I just thought that was kind of interesting, right? It would be so funny to be the interviewer that asked him about porcelain. And he's like, yeah, I didn't really like it. It's too mushy and I don't like my vocals. And be like, dude, I know, right? They suck and it is too mushy. Like, <laughs> anyway, hey, we, we're here with Moby. We'll be right back. <laughs> she was 18. She was only 18 years old, Moby. <laughs> she was only 18 <laughs> years 18. old. <laughs> First of all, we'll talk about the good shit because I think there's some good shit here. That fucking string sample is really, really dope. This is something that has been sampled from a track called Fight for Survival from the soundtrack, another real soundtrack hours, Uh for the uh, 1960s film Exodus. Now, 
Now, this is pure sample fodder because uh, you can also hear samples from Exodus on the works of Ice-T, Nas, and T.I. Interesting. I think he took those strings and he kind of reversed them and chopped them up a little bit, but the way he used it, serving as the kind of backbone for the whole song, is brilliant, and it really gets across that distant, disjointed, kind of of out-of-it, numb feeling of being in a breakup. And I think, again, different to what I was talking about with Damage, I think this is a recent breakup where things haven't kind of landed yet and you're still kind of reeling in the shock of it and I think that that's communicated so well with the the sheer amount of space and distance that everything has and the delicacy that is kind of created with it especially with that little that little piano line coming through with Moby's own vocals kind of scarcely getting to the volume of speech and then having that second line where they're repeated kind of uh, manipulated as well. Like it all just seems very otherworldly and far away. And I really like that. It's, It's something you can really inhabit and sit in and get that kind of feeling from. But minus a million points for this song being at least partially responsible for spearheading the chill out mega genre of the 2000s and you guys oh know exactly Lord. what I am talking about <laughs> every fucking cafe for real though inescapable like what the hell happened like- just compilation CDs called like ultimate chill out mega mix 12 <laughs> right mystery of sound presents sit down and shut up like <laughs> for me like porcelain is a fucking poster child for that genre. Totally. I just I just distinctly remember it being used in maybe every single one <laughs> of those chill out mixes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that, and that's certainly like a time and place kind of thing. If you were there, you kind of know what I'm talking about, but... Whew. Yeah, but the thing is, about, like, as a song, it's like a breakup song, right? Like, if you were going through a breakup or a rough patch when you first heard this song, right? Like there's very few lyrics in there, but just um, like saying, in my dreams, I'm dying all the time. Then I awake, it's a kaleidoscopic mind. I never meant to hurt you, never meant to lie. So this is goodbye. This is goodbye. Like that kind of shit would resonate deeply with you if you were going through a breakup to someone 16 years your senior. (laughs) 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 No, like joking aside, I see why this is here. It is deeply melancholic, and deeply personal to Moby, but also like the best kind of breakup or love songs that can be personal to the author. But then for the listener, it feels like you cling onto these individual lyrics and like, Oh my God, I know exactly what you're fucking feeling, man. And like that kind of shit, right? Like you can totally, totally see why this is here. It's, it's that exact kind of melancholic breakup song that strikes a chord with people immediately whether they're breaking up or even remember a breakup. They're like, oh, I know exactly what you mean when you say, in my dreams I'm jealous all the time when I wake and going out of my mind. Like, you know that shit, right? Like, he nailed the lyrics. I think it's a good song. I think it's a bit on the nose. To me, Nathan, breakup feelings are on the nose, though. Yeah, that's true. If you're not in the moment of sincerity, you're like, oh, that's a bit open to be fucking doing that. Come on, man. But, like, when you are in the moment, that's all you can fucking grasp onto. I fucking think this song is really quite wonderful it's sincere and open to a dorky degree if so I mean, people don't fuck with it like, I, I entirely get it but like i just like when i was listening to this song and i was reading through the youtube comments of so many people commenting about how like they listen to this on repeat when they were breaking up with their like their first partner or like people saying like i listened to this non-stop when my husband and i divorced kind of thing and i was like man this fucking was the soundtrack of some people's most emotionally raw moments maybe reading those colored my 
reading of the song. But I do think that there is something here that is like kind of beautiful in its own kind of like self-contained, hard on the sleeve, crappy misery, right? Yeah. Like I just think there's something to this that I think is quite lovely. I think Nathan's just too much of a Chad to have ever experienced heartbreak. <laughs> oh, definitely. I've been a dumper all the time, so I don't really know what this feels like. <laughs> just get over it. For me, I get all of the emotion um, that I would want from this song from the instrumental stuff. I was going to say something very similar, man. I think that's that sample, right, in the background, the hey woman, it's all right. And honestly, when the piano comes in, I'm teetering on the edge of it going too far at that point. And then when, when his vocals come in, like I hate to agree with him, but I do think they are really weak <laughs> you know you know i hate to agree with moby but um but animal rights his vocals suck here i get a really strong connection from the song up to the vocals and then the vocals just push it past sincerity like it just feels too forced and yeah like you're saying i i totally get it and i i see how people um, would have a really strong connection with this song i just don't like the vocals and the lyrics i guess i think if there was an instrumental version of this i would listen to that over this pretty much every time. So would I, but that's because I'm not breaking up with anybody right now. If I was fucking 19 or 20 or in the Triple J demographic and when you're that age and every possible failed romance feels like the end of the world, I feel like this song would fucking strike a chord with you that is incredibly, incredibly deep. Just listen to Grindcore. Well, obviously, when I'm break- if I ever break out with someone, I'm obviously just listening to The Cure's pornography, obviously. <laughs> I'll just listen to Nails. Sea Change. Oh. The Virgin Moby versus the Chad Mersbau. <laughs> oh, my God. Breakups, harsh noise. <laughs> David, you've been a bit quiet. What are you vibing here? So, quickly, I'm a sucker for this shit, and I needed to, I needed to get closure. I went to check if Moby was indeed putting away anyone else around this period that wasn't Natalie Portman. He was. Her name was Christina Ricci, and she is a whopping two years older than Natalie Portman. So, you know. Richard. Look, if you broke up with Christina Ritchie, that would be hard, though, man. She's oh, a real pretty true. lady. Yeah. She's fucking married to Pete Campbell from Mad Men. No shit. Huh. Nice. Yeah, they met on Mad Men. Listeners, if you want to talk about Mad Men, fucking email me. I wrote my master thesis on Mad Men. I'll talk about <laughs> Mad Men forever. <laughs> Just quickly fucking bouncing on it. Any- oh, 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 look. On the uh, Hottest 100s Discord, there's already a Mad Men channel now. Huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just think that's interesting as all. What season can you postal vote the theme song, Andrew? RJD2's track. That'd be like, I, I, I'm assuming you're 2006 that yeah cool look forward to it it's a good theme (laughs) (laughs) no sorry david i really want to hear your thoughts on this song why is it that there are so many producers out there that have a fucking rolodex full of incredible fucking singers that they can call on Mm. within 10 fucking minutes and have them drop some shit and yet so so many of them are just like yeah, nah, lads, I'm going to take this one. I'm going to fucking step up to the mic. There are so many fucking producers out there who cannot sing for shit. Calvin fucking Harris cannot sing to save his life. He's friends with fucking Rihanna and fucking Ellie Golding and whoever the fuck else. But like on so many of his records, he's just like, when I met you in the summer, I'm just like, dude, 
<laughs> just fucking don't do that shit. And here, I legitimately thought when I heard this as a kid that he'd like brought in an actor like or someone who like wasn't a trained singer. When I first heard it, I was just like, is that Robin Williams? <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't oh. know. I don't know why. <laughs> in my dreams, I'm dying all the time. Anyone else? <laughs> no, this was this was serious era Robin Williams because he just done Goodwill Hunting. I think he's about to do fucking Patch Adams. Why did you? Why did you think it was Robin Williams? I I was nine. <laughs> I was fucking nine years old, dude. I'm sure everyone is Robin Williams when you're nine. <laughs> it's, that, that's 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 Pretty science. Much. Science. How the yeah. fuck would I know? <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you why I thought most of the shit that I thought when I was that age, dude. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In my dreams, I'm dying. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> all right, I'm out. See you guys. Would you like it more if it were <sighs> sung by Robin Williams? Well, we all would, obviously. <laughs> Hang on. Do we, do we arrive at what Deej actually thinks about the song? I, I really am just... Because I don't want to fucking give it credit because... I'll, I'll get fucking quoted out of context. It's just like, oh, yeah, this cunt fucking sides with fucking creepazoids and shit. And I'm just like, ah, oh, fuck. Dude, I rated it, man. I know. I know. We've paid out Moby quite a lot. I know, but like still. So what you're saying is that you can't actually listen to the song without it getting super complicated for you. That's it, man. It's tough. Mm. Like, because there is mm. stuff in here that is like objectively gorgeous like not his vocals obviously but like that string bit and the like that ascending piano bit in the second part of the chorus just when it kind of cascades down from the top of the piano is just fucking amazing but it's just one of those things i just feel weird about it like i i haven't been able to listen to anything he's done since that's just the way things are you know like hmm. would you prefer if we moved on to something not problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. At number 21, it's the return of Limp Biscuit. This is my generation. If only we could fly. Limp Biscuit style. John Otto. Take him to the Matthews Bridge. Making their triumphant return to the Triple J Hottest 100, coming in at number 21 in the 2000 countdown. That is the song My Generation from the album Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, not to be confused with the 1960s hit single by The Who. Funny story on two tracks on this album, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, Limp Bizkit 
take the titles of two already very, very famous songs from the 60s, one by Frank Sinatra, one by The Who, and they reclaim them and are just like, nah, that's our shit now. What's the Frankie one? My Way. Oh, yeah. And then it's funny that they, they would then go on to fucking cover the Who's behind Blue Eyes. Yes, exactly. So there's a there's a Who connection there. So let's do a quick like side-by-side comparison. So My Generation by The Who is this anti-authoritarian song asserting itself as, you know, kind of a voice of the people kind of thing. I don't think that's all that dissimilar to what... Limp Bizkit are doing here, it's done a lot more ham-fistedly, a lot less, like, major chord Sherpily and shit, but, like, there's still that kind of rebel-renegade kind of feel to the song. And I, I think that's a really cool through line. This is a song where we get to explore everything about the dynamic of this band. Of course, you have Fred up the front just doing Fred shit. He has really asserted himself personality-wise, persona-wise, flow-wise. You know exactly what you're getting when he steps up to the mic. And the same thing when Wes Borland puts on a guitar. He knows how to, like, nail that huge riff, but then throw in some cool, like, tricky pedal stuff that makes the lead sound completely kind of different. That dissonance kind of adds that aggression and that kind of drive. Two other members of the band are shouted out as well. So, obviously, John Otto on the drums, a fucking great drummer who is, like, very disciplined in the world of hip-hop and, you know, can lay down those very strong backbeats. He syncs up with Ballin perfectly, and he's just a super, super tight drummer and is really the engine room that keeps the whole thing going. Uh, Obviously, DJ Lethal, bring it on, uh, also gets shouted out here. DJ Lethal, formerly of House of Pain, there's just those tiny little bits and pieces within the arrangement and within the structure of what Limbiscuit are doing that really kind of make him feel like he's bringing something. He's adding in that hip-hop element that was obviously such a driving force of new metal. I love the way that Limbiscuit worked as a unit at this point, creating what they're creating and doing what they're doing at this stage, like they are just doing it nigh on perfectly. Last week, I was like, I don't want to like over-intellectualize this band, but like, I think there is so much more going on in Limbiscuit biscuit than anyone is willing to give them credit for so i just genuinely wanted to do that because this song still fucks on an exponential level to me i love this fucking song all right last week when we talked about take a look around you said it made you just go like full actual lizard i know yeah dude does this song do the same thing for you you know when you like shake a spray can and you just hear a little bit of a rattle that's what happens anytime like limp biscuit comes on for me there's just something that fucking clicks in the back of my head where i'm just like it's on everybody knows it's on and this song does that for you as well totally i think this is just fucking masterful and i'm not alone in this i distinctly remember this i was in i was in melbourne i think it was for it was poison city weekend i think it was maybe 2014 or 2015 around this point right we're all in the in the club in the front bar of the corner hotel after this show uh there's a dj like playing this a bunch of nostalgic songs and we're all like drinking and like singing along, everyone's just having this fucking great time. But then I think it was a Jimmy Eat World or something that fades out and there's just this one second of silence and then the, we just hear, 
if only we can fly. And everyone in the bar fucking loses their minds. By the time <laughs> that he's saying, John Odo, take it to the Matthews Bridge, my friend Lauren Hamill, who now plays in Tropical Fuckstorm, is on my shoulders with her hat on backwards, just fucking raising the roof. Shit has gone completely fucking... The whole place just turns into a fucking madhouse. That's what goes down when fucking Limp Biscuit plays, man. You know what? I can relate to that experience. Yes! I have definitely been on dance floors where my generation has come on and I don't even have like the complete nostalgic attachment to it, but it's hard to kind of remove any kind of attachment entirely because I'm just the age that I am. There is a connection to Limp Bizkit there. Yeah. It's not necessarily to decide exactly what that connection is going to be for everyone, but you're going to have one. Look deep within yourself. You know it to be true. Yeah. Right? Hey, I think there's probably a time and a place for this song. When you're 14 and at the back of the bus, totally. When you're shit-faced on a dance floor, yep, probably. At the moment, being a fucking 31-year-old on a Monday afternoon who probably just wants to chill out and play some very intellectual video games later, maybe not the time. (laughs) Maybe not the time. And I do think, like, if I was going to biscuit it, I would definitely biscuit it to take a look around because to me, like, there's just a few things in this song that kind of don't match up. For a start, Fred Durst is like, he's gone full (laughs) Durst. And I think I want him about like 40% less Dursty, except in the moments where he barks fucked up like a little Pekingese bitch. That sounds fucking incredible. But like everywhere else, I kind of go like have another run at it because I I really don't think that's the best you've got in you. The, The go ahead and talk shit bit works entirely too perfectly. And I think like the, the lyrics of the chorus work, but I think like altogether, like it just, I don't know. It, it all feels a bit too kind of messy to me, just, just as a song, as a concept of a song. I kind of want to agree with you what you said about like it being the who, right? Cause new metal was designed to be marketed towards people as saying like, Hey, Gen X, this is you, right? I think to a large extent, people ran with it. I don't think you could do the same thing today because everyone's kind of too individual. You know what I mean? Like we've all got our own Instagrams and our own TikToks and whatever. We're, we're our own brands. We don't have this kind of collective brand kind of thing. But I think Limp Bizkit marketing the, this song as a collective, as a conceit for a song, it works incredibly well. Yeah. I just kind of wish that a few more elements of it were a little bit better realized for that. I also reached the wall where it's like, you're being intellectual about Limp Bizkit, dude. Um, shut up and yell. Go ahead and talk shit at people. <laughs> Compare this to say like Nookie, for example, which I went on pretty hard for its problematic kind of bullshit approach to relationships and gender roles. But this one doesn't have any of that. So the objections that you might have to this song are simply objections that you have to new metal as a genre, I think. Deej, you mentioned it explicitly. Adam, you referenced it. I know that if I was at a house party and if I was maybe like... Beers in. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a bar to pass first. Drink if this song was to come on at like three thirty in the morning when everyone's had a bit, there's no doubt that I would at least be singing along to the choruses and jumping around with people. F- Fred's life has been one long cringe post on Maine. <laughs> His parents decided. Let's have a root and then in nine months' time, let's post cringe on Maine for the next 45 years. And that's what Fred Durst is. Um, <laughs> but 
he <laughs> fucking manages to channel that kind of, you're right, David, it, it is parallel to the who. It's a well-worn trope in music, obviously, of like the older generations don't understand my generation. But here in the late 90s, early 2000s, this kind of high octane energy, new metal music, like you're blending metal and rap, two genres the old guard already don't fucking care for. And channeling it into a song that, that's about like you don't give a fuck about my generation you actually you're daring them to talk shit about you yeah exactly what I'm trying to like allude to here is that for what it is it works very well it's really really not for me at all but for what the band were trying to do they did it much better here than they did on Nookie the crux of this song is is the chorus right like you don't give a fuck and we won't listen until you give a fuck about us which is a trope that any young person can relate to compared to like with Nookie where it was like, ah, oh, my girl, she was so bad and like she was cheating a on me bitch. and that. But I, yeah, she, she was a bitch, but I did it because that puss was so good, as Fred Durst probably said in his autobiography. Yeah. Called, yeah. <laughs> then it all fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> a Fred Durst exploration. <laughs> my brilliant career. My, 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 my brilliant limp career. Um, my brilliant career. <laughs> the, like, the lyrics in here aren't that objectionable. They're also not that good. They're really not. <laughs> They're not good at all. Oh, not- yeah. Did you want to bring up your beef with Shockwave? Yeah, it's the opposite of beef. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll wait off to talk about Adobe Shockwave as a... Um, interactivity medium on the internet. Put a flag in that because whenever we talk about Limp Bizkit, there is one voice that the people want to hear more than any other. No, d- does anyone even care that I think it's <laughs> shit? Like, it just doesn't oh, matter. I care, d- I care deeply in the manner in which you no, care about it being I'm, shit, Nathan. So, Nathan, you, you have to agree this is better than Nookie. Yeah. Yeah, great. So this is like a 2 out of 10 instead of a 1 out of 10. So we're there. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, I just don't think the parts fit. Like, Fred Durst is just so obnoxious and shitty that... Every time the song musically like does something technically proficient, that doesn't match for me. And that bit in the like in the middle with the kind of breakdown where Fred, you know, talks about do you think we could fly or whatever, like that's just Oh, I love that fucking bit. It's shit. It's so bad. <laughs> so good. Like the idea that this band could like have a job is insane to me. <laughs> It could be a pilot. This is their full-time job. I know. They do this for a living. It's putting on the costume of, like, meaningful music. (laughs) Because it's just not at all. It's just this shitty, like, like, propped up by a label, like, obnoxious band that has nothing to say, but they just say it so loudly. And, like, and the musicians are talented. And that just, like, all those parts... Together just make me sad. <laughs> you are a million years old. I'm so old. I'm so but <laughs> you you are turning you are turning a million tomorrow. Yeah. No. A million and one. Okay, okay, but here's my thing. So I I like punk music a lot. Punk music stylistically was a reaction to like upper class hair metal where it was all about the image and all about this virtuosic talent and equipment that no one else had access to. Obviously, it also then shifted a bit more into being like particularly political, but it started off as like a rejection of that style. What is new metal a reaction to? Other than people not taking shitheads seriously. What every genre is a reaction to something else. Okay, okay. I understand that, but this song definitely seems like they're 
an argument that Limp Biscuit is a reaction to something. All right, no, I buzz me in, buzz me in. I I know, I know, I've got this right because I've talked about new metal being about particularly teenagers who feel disillusioned by the family unit and about living inside of working class middle America and the day to day of that. We spoke about this when we spoke about corn. You know, it is equally relevant when you talk about Slipknot and it is equally relevant when you talk about Limp Biscuit. They all come at it from a different kind of paths. I think the path that Limp Biscuit primarily comes to is just kind of going like if you have a front of ignorance and if you have a front of actually not giving a fuck, you know, you can deflect just through like obnoxiousness and aggression any of that kind of stuff getting to you. And I don't think that's necessarily the healthiest thing, but it is a strategy. And I think that's what Limp Bizkit is putting forward. And I think this song is attempting to rally that entire generation of people together under the banner of like, yeah, we see you that these people who are supposed to care about you don't care. Well, guess what? Fuck them. Again, Nathan, I think it gets more complicated when you talk about something that you've touched on when we've talked about new metal before about the the feedback loop of the antagonism of this music to the the systems um that are that are causing the pain there's not a reconciliation kind of happening there um but i think you know again the what i said to that i i think stands for this song as well there's a catharsis and is it catharsis coming at the expense of creating more of division potentially but there is catharsis but it's not even like a productive division. It's, I mean, like you said, it's about not giving a fuck. And it's just like, I, I just don't care about someone angrily disengaging like that. I think that's valid. It's like Smashing Pumpkin Zero, but without any of the self-awareness or the like perspective that that song has that actually makes it interesting and meaningful. I'm not disagreeing. But, and I'm also just like, I'm sure there's someone out there, anyone listening, if you got into Limp Biscuit after the fact... I am intensely fascinated by what that's like because yeah, dude, yeah, same, hugely same. I think if if you were into them as a kid and of like, I see the appeal as a kid, like that that checks out, and I don't begrudge anyone getting into them as a kid or whatever. Um, and and I totally get that, like you know, we build a connection with with stuff that we liked when we were young that that like doesn't always hold up to like analytical scrutiny, and it's not meant to, and that's fine, whatever. I like heaps of shit that like. I probably shouldn't or, you know, whatever. But, like, I didn't get into this as a kid, so it's just, like, anathema to me. Like, I hate it. There's, like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I think the point of this song is I think there is a value in what I call, like, fuck you politics. It's not the job of, like, an oppressed person to teach the ally of the oppressor the value in the oppressed's point of view. Yeah, that's fair. But I think with this kind of film, that's the, it's a similar approach. They, it's, it's just fuck you politics. It's not a justification or an argument. It's just a point of view from like the Midwest white male teen who is not aware of their privilege but is depressed and angry and feels alienated. This kind of song is for them. The idea of just saying the things in my life that are frustrating – are very frustrating and I want to say fuck you to those frustrating things and this is a song for them. Again, this is not – I am not that person and I didn't like Limp Biscuit when they were around to begin with and I don't like them now. So, like, this is not a song that I ever want to listen to but I do see the appeal is all I'm saying. 
and also I I hadn't gotten to it, but um yeah, he says uh it's Limp Biscuit fucking up your town. We downloaded the Shockwave, which is a all too rare reference to fucking late nineties, early two thousands internet software. Uh, Shockwave was an in-browser media connection that was similar to Flash, the thing that drove websites such as Newgrounds.com and also like Homestar Runner, these websites that you had like simple animations. But uh, Shockwave was like far more versatile to the point where in a Shockwave application, you could actually have a Flash application within the Shockwave application. But Shockwave was much more expensive and much less open source and actually even less secure. But Shockwave had a terrific amount of fucking things going on there, but even though it was only like, it was less than half as popular as Flash as a plugin. So I do think in this case, Shockwave was kind of like the Betamax to Flash's VHS. And I know listeners, that's why you tune into this music podcast is to hear me talk about internet history because it's one of the four things that I know about. <laughs> righto, righto. So why would Limp Biscuit be bragging about downloading it? A, the primary thing is pun. You're like it's a shockwave. When, when we hear the word shockwave, we immediately think of Macromedia Shockwave Player. But also, shockwave also means like the impact that comes from like the outgoing wave of energy that comes from the impact of something like that. Like if a yeah, if a comet hit the Earth, there would be a shockwave. And again, mm. I don't mean Macromedia Shockwave Player. I mean mm, you mean like, the, the other thing. So it's so, so it's actually a pun. <laughs> I'm not sure if you realize that they weren't just saying it's the biscuit fucking up your town and then separate point. I went to macromedia.com and then downloaded shockwave.exe. They weren't actually saying that. They were saying they were saying that, but they were also saying we made a shockwave. It's like genius.com is right here on the pod. It just it just fucking I don't know why you'd make that reference. I still pa- part of why the reference is so good is because <laughs> so many people absorbed Limp Biscuit through fucking LimeWire and Kazaa and like Napster. They did a tour sponsored by Napster. There you fucking go, yeah. Also, Fred was a huge gamer. He ended up being a playable character in WWF SmackDown Just Bring It a year later. It's pretty sick. But in conclusion, this song sucks, but it rules. <laughs> I'll second that motion. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I arrive at the same. I arrive at the same place. I can understand that take and sign off on it. Deej, this is our last ever time. Well, I mean, you'll probably vote some songs in, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Fuck him up. But um, this is it for regular countdown entries for Limp Biscuit. Oh, man. What a ride we've had. Two big years. Yeah, two years, yeah. three songs. Uh, hell of an experience. Um, okay, so I will quickly tell you what happened after the fact. Limp Bizkit became the biggest band of the world. Then Big Day Out happened. And then everyone hated them. Then Wes Borland left. They made an album called Results May Vary. Everyone hated it. Except for a cover of Behind Blue Eyes. It went fucking gangbusters. Then a couple years after that, they released a Greatest Hits album, uh, which included one new song, which was a mashup cover thing of Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue and Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. It was a thing. They split up and then Wes Borland came back and then they got back together and they made an EP. It was called Part 1, but I don't think they ever released a Part 2. And then in 2011, they released an album called Gold Cobra. It also fucking sucked and everyone fucking hated it. After a while, they just kept touring. They were signed to Cash Money Records, which is Lil Wayne's record label. Nothing ever came of it. And then they just got dropped. Fred Durst turned to directing and made a movie called The Fanatic starring John Travolta, which also fucking sucks and everyone fucking hates it. Basically, the last 20 odd years, they've spent people just generally hating them. But they did come back to Australia twice, once in 2012 for Sound 
Soundwave. And then again in, for Download in 2018. Uh, they also did a show at the Horton Pavilion on that tour, which I went to and was fucking sick. Also, just to... Uh Close the gap of internet shit. They've been promising a new record called Stampede of the Disco Elephants since like 2012 or something. Yeah. In 2017, Fred Durst claimed the album has already been online for a year and a half on Soulseek, but Wes Borland claims that Durst is still working on the album. It leaked and they're still working on it, and it's going to suck. Oh boy, I can't wait. <laughs> That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Hottest 100s and Thousands. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. We appreciate you. We love that you can fly Limp biscuit style. Before we get out of here, we're picking our favourites, our least favourites, and continuing that ever-continuing story of Carryover Champ and Carryover Chump. My favourite this week... Yeah, fuck it. It's Limp Bizkit, my generation. Huh. And I might as well just make it my new chat because I'm already what here. What the fuck? Yeah, fuck you guys. <laughs> I, don't, I don't give a fuck anymore. Uh, I see that the message of the song has got to you. You're damn right. You can listen to Limp Bizkit, but then you can truly embody Limp Bizkit and take it with you into your life. <laughs> exactly. My least favorite this week, I guess Moby. Fuck, I don't know, man. It's tough. But Limp Bizkit are forever. Uh, you guys, what do you got? My favourite this week, I'm going to give it to UMI's Damage. I think it was a great revealer of a different side to their songwriting. It, however, is in no way dethroning my champ of Radiohead's and everything in its right place. My limp song is Worst Biscuits, <laughs> my generation, but it's nowhere near as bad as Black Jesus. My metric for deciding favourite song this week was just the one I had the most fun with, and it was Freestyler. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, man. Damn right. Fair. And I guess my least my least favorite was My Generation, using the metric that I think there were more things that I wanted to punch up in My Generation than any other song. I want to hear that punch up. Does Freestyler dethrone everything that's right place, Adam? It does not. <laughs> and uh, and also the, the chump is chumpin' and chumpity chump. <laughs> Yeah, favorite is Freestyler, but I'll hold on to Radiohead as my champ. Least favorite is Limp Biscuit. Do it. I kind of like. Do it. You want to? I know. I can see it in you. No, I, I can tell, man. No, I, I can do tell. want to, but I also like. I appreciate the arguments that everyone else made. Would that be a first? Having a champ and a chump. Yeah, that's for the fans to figure out. We're not. We're not doing stats on our own podcast. I'm not, I'm not going back and listen to that crap. You guys. Oh do it. God, no. <laughs> no. No way. I appreciate your arguments. Like so. And I hated responsibility so much. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. I think I'll keep responsibility. <laughs> it's a bit Great. at this point. Yeah, exactly. I have to yeah. respect the bit. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, it is a good bit. It's a strong bit. Oh, and also before we go, a bit of trivia. I just looking at Andrew. Look. I swear to God, if this is about a web player, the web player that uh, Don Draper used, it's arguably the farthest thing from a web player. Okay, um, when I was looking up uh, singles from UMI, <laughs> Berlin Chair is specifically about. This terrifically designed uh, chair called Red and Blue Chair by um, Rietveld, um, and it's one of part of the uh, the De Stil art movement, the artistic style of which you may know if you know the White Stripes album by the same name, which is those harsh intersecting black lines with uh, red, black, yellow, and blue color elements, and. Tim saw this chair exhibited in Berlin and then wrote a song about that. And the chair is, you, if you saw it, you'd probably recognize it if you have any interest in interior design or architecture. It's one of my favoritely designed. <laughs> we all have our favorite design chairs. I know that. It's one of my favoritely designed chairs of all time. And I just figured that was very interesting that Berlin chair was written about a specific chair. Your favorite chair. 
fuck off, you cunts, laughing at me on the goddamn chat that Adam's going to mute out. Makes me look like a fucking moron. Some chairs are good. (laughs) Now? You're you're bringing this up now? Well, I didn't know before when we spoke about it. I was looking it up. Fucking hell, I'm muting my mic. Some chairs are good. Please, if you would like to keep in touch more than the three-hour episodes you get every single week, uh, then please hit us up on the Discord. The link to that is in the description. Uh, You can also hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hottest100s, at Hottest100s. But until next time, my dear, dear friends, on behalf of Mr. Nathan Harrison... Bye. Mr. Adam Buncher. I love Andrew. I love Andrew too. I love Mr. Andrew, Andrew McDonald. I'm going for a sit. Have <laughs> <laughs> you been standing this whole time? No wonder you're reading about chairs. Yeah, that's what? wild. <laughs> Have you guys not? That's better for the diaphragm. <laughs> yes. My name is David James yes. Young. Everything is good for you and my generation. <laughs>